This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. I read an article on Rupture from the end of last year called Save Our Seas, Save Ourselves. It talked about multiple pressures that humanity is currently putting on our oceans and ocean life under capitalism. As soon as I read it, I wanted to talk to the author. So let's get right into the interview. And I apologize, there is a slight echo in some of the audio when I am asking questions. We've tried to clean it up a bit, but a slight echo remains. Here's the interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. Tell us who you are. Well, firstly, thanks for inviting me on. It's nice to be back in the U.S., even if it's <laughs> right? just through a podcast. Um, so my name is Jess Fear. I'm an eco-socialist and socialist feminist activist. Um, I was a climate scientist years ago with the U.S. Geological Survey and then also the Burke Museum of Natural History at the University of Washington. But over the last 10 years, I've mostly worked as a political organizer on campaigns like 15 Now to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and on campaigns to elect a socialist to the city council in Seattle. I moved to Dublin about five years ago, and I'm currently the national organizer of a revolutionary eco-socialist network called RISE that is part of a broader socialist party called People Before Profit. That's great. You're picking up a little bit of the accent. Am I? Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. I pick up an accent wherever I go, and yep. so yeah, was, I'm sure I'll sound I'll sound more American by the end of this. <laughs> well, I was yeah, I was born in Oxford, um, but I came to the states when I was like four and a half, so I haven't had an accent in a long time. So, so I was yeah, I, I invited you on the program because I read an article you wrote on rupture called "Save Our Seas, Save Ourselves," mm-hmm. and I found that article really helpful in understanding the multiple crises that are going on in the ocean. Uh, I mean, I knew the ocean was having issues, but I you know, didn't know all the details of what exactly is going on. And one scenario that you outlined in the article with an example image of bulldozers with nets in the Amazon, I think that really stuck with me because I hadn't really thought about that before or in that way. And I'm wondering if you would read that passage real quick that starts, imagine if giant bulldozers. Sure. Um, so it says, imagine if giant bulldozers with nets on either side were deployed in the Amazon rainforest just to catch the poison dart frogs. Nets are non-discriminatory, so they also entangle all the other kinds of frogs you don't want, in addition to the sloths, squirrel monkeys, birds, and jaguars. You can't sell those animals, so you toss the dead or dying bycatch and continue on. Over and over, you bulldoze, scraping the forest floor to scoop up as many poison dart frogs as possible, killing huge numbers of other animals and destroying vast tracts of the ecosystem. Think about it. No one would allow that. That's absolutely true. That's an amazing comparison because our oceans are so important. And, you know, you mentioned that you talked about the U.S. where you're from compared to Ireland where you live now, and specifically as it applies to the amount of marine life on the beaches. Tell us about that experience and the concept you outlined called shifting baselines. Sure. So my family spent a lot of times outdoors when I was growing up. You know, we were always on the Shenandoah River in Virginia or hiking around the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so I'm used to seeing forests, 
um, healthy forests, lots right. of life in the forest, squirrels, chipmunks, like dozens of species of birds. And then also as an adult, I moved to Florida and then also on the West Coast in Seattle. I always felt surrounded by lots of wildlife. So when I moved to Dublin and I traveled around Ireland a bit, I was always struck by firstly how bare the hills are. Um, there are very, very few pockets of native forests in Ireland um, and most of the land is just completely cleared off for raising cattle and sheep. But it was actually the rock pools or tide pools that surprised me the most. If you are like in California is a good example. If you visit the tide pools in California, you will find sea stars, sea urchins, various kinds of shrimp, crabs, limpets, snails, you know, as well as like lots of different kinds of marine algae. Um, right. And I have never found any wildlife in any of the tide pools in the Republic of Ireland. So in the south. And it was only in Northern Ireland did I find one sea slug after many, many hours appearing into each pool. And, you know, it was just surprising to me that you would have so little. Concerning. Um, my part oh, <laughs> it was incredibly concerning, but also I just wasn't sure. I'm not from here. So right. maybe my expectations of tide pools in the U.S. was, you know, confusing me. Right. So I asked my partner, who's from Ireland? And he said, oh, you know, maybe we just don't really have that here, you know. Mm. Um, but I thought, where are all the wild animals? Um, and it was only after I read a book called Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature by Podrick Fogarty, that I really began to understand that Ireland once did have lots of life on mm. land and in the seas. Um, and both have been dramatically reduced for, you know, for all the various reasons you'd know. And, but, you know, for my partner, who's from here, all he's ever known are bare hills and empty tide pools. Mm. He doesn't expect to see anything because that's all he's ever known. Right. And that's what shifting baseline syndrome is. It's each generation taking their environmental situation that they grew up around as normal and saying that's the baseline from which changes should be measured one way or the other. Um, and it shifts generational-wise, because if you go back far enough, you will meet people in Ireland who remember when the oceans were teeming with cod and the rivers with salmon, and I would imagine the rock pools or tide pools at that time had lots of life in them. But today, that's not how young people see the ocean or the rivers, at least here in Ireland. And actually, for this article, um, I'm always trying to find some story to tell to draw mm. people in, and I was struggling a little bit with, what would I say? Like, right. how could I personalize this? Um, and I was actually at a meeting kind of telling people about my summer vacation, learning to scuba dive. And I did that off the coast of Kerry, which is this really, really beautiful area in Southwest Ireland. And one of the people at the meeting and, you know, the Irish person said, was there, was there anything to even look at? Like, <laughs> right. isn't it just bare down there? <laughs> and, right. and it just encapsulated this issue with shifting baseline syndrome. You know, that this young Irish person thought there was nothing really under the ocean. Right. So basically, you know, whatever you grow up with, that's your expectation and you think that's normal. But, you know, there could have been a lot of depletion of natural resources and native flora and fauna long before you ever came to walk those uh, beaches. So exactly. Yeah, it really colors what you expect to see and what you expect to see in the natural environment. You know, there's a lot of talk about the fact that you know, the climate is warming. If people are paying attention, they're aware of that. But the, re the reason I like this article is that most people don't realize the extent of the crisis in our oceans. So in your opinion, what's the biggest issue of concern as it relates to oceans right now? 
And what can organizers and activists that care about this issue do to push back and restore some of the native life and that wherever they live, whether it's you know in Ireland, the U.S., Norway, or anywhere? Yeah, it's a good question because I think it's important not only to know about the situation, right. but what can we do to actually take effective action? And it's funny, isn't it? Because like we live on an ocean planet. Right. Our climate... Our weather are dominated by the ocean, whether you realize it or not. Like the air you breathe is mainly produced by ocean life. Mm. And yet there's just so little attention to it. And even in Ireland, like it's an island. You know, it's a tiny little island. Um, There's a lot less focus on the ocean than you would think. There's a lot less awareness and knowledge about marine life than you would think, you know. Um, And I'd say, like, what is the big issue? It's, It's hard to choose one. But I think if you press me, I would say ocean acidification. Mm. And the reason I'd say that, and not overfishing, which is a major issue that I talk about in the article, um, you know, ocean habitats can rebound if you leave them alone. The fish and the mammals can come back. And that's why the article talks about marine protected areas, which, by the way, you know, they they don't have to be like an ocean version of U.S. national parks where there's no human activity at all. You just can't have industrial fishing, bottom trawling, long lines, and so on, and expect to have ecosystems recover. But ocean acidification cannot be reversed in our lifetimes. Mm. You know, once you change the chemistry of the ocean, you've locked in changes for thousands of years. Um, And for your listeners who don't know what ocean acidification is, it's basically a, you know, it's a byproduct of pumping out greenhouse gases. And we know they're going into the atmosphere. You can see, you know, the images of smokestacks and things like that. Right. Um, and you know that they're causing um, an increase in the greenhouse effect. But 30% of all emissions have dissolved into the ocean. Mm. Um, over 20 million tons dissolve into it every single day. Um, and when you have gargantuan amounts of carbon dioxide dissolving into the seawater, it changes the pH. Um, in this case, it's making it more acidic. Mm. And this is obviously a problem for ocean life. I mean, yeah. just imagine if the chemistry of the air we breathe was dramatically changed. You know, just consider air pollution and all the havoc that that wreaks on our bodies, the damage it does, the asthma it causes, you know, it reduces life expectancy, all of that. But it's it's particularly bad, um, the acidification of the ocean for shell building animals like clams, oysters and corals. Um, it's also a problem for some species of fish, like it, it can impact their ability to sense predators. So it's completely changing you know, the medium in which they're living in and around. And that's why I compare it with air. Um, and it's, it's, it just, it can't be changed. You can't stop mm. it from, you can't like reverse it, you right. know, in a way that um, you could reverse some of the damages of overfishing. Um, and I think that gets to the question that you asked me about, like, what can people do? Um, mm-hmm. The main issue here with ocean acidification is and continues to be extracting and burning fossil fuels. You know, we've got to name that target and fight for emissions to get to zero. Mm. And that means rejecting the idea that we can offset today's emissions or we can pull it out of the air with technology. You know, even if you could pull it out of the air, which I don't think you could at the scale needed, Mm. you can't pull it out of the ocean. Right. Um, So wherever we are, we have to be, you know, both building awareness that fossil fuels must be ended. We, We must get to zero as quickly as possible. Um, as well as what can we do uh, as we transform our economy. The U.S. is the richest country on the planet. 
So they can and should get there faster than poor countries.、Mm -hmm. The idea that we're going to let things go on and have a target of you know zero emissions by 2050 is to condemn the poorest people on the planet. You have contributed almost nothing to the problem.、Um, you're condemning them to unlivable conditions, to famine, to sea level rise, to death, essentially. So that means for activists, that means for us, if we want to do something, no new fossil fuel infrastructure, no new pipelines, no new gas plants, nothing. We should be resisting them all and supporting indigenous communities and their continued resistance. And I think, in addition, I would say that it's also really important that we fight back against the narrative that transforming our economy to run on renewable energy and to be more ecologically sustainable in general means huge sacrifices. It means we have to give up. We have to reject that and say no. That the ones who actually have to give up are the very rich, who contribute the most emissions. Right. And that if we have to phase out most cars, which we do,、uh, we're not losing here. We don't lose. We don't lose mobility. We gain public transport. We gain freedom from the stress of sitting in hours of traffic. If we retrofit our homes and our buildings, you don't have huge electricity bills, if any at all. Right. Working class people gain in the transition away from a fossil fuel powered economy, and we need to be very, very clear about that. So, you know, if you want to campaign on this issue, campaigning for free public transport is incredibly popular,、um, and it really helps to push back against the idea that we have to sacrifice, that we're all in it together,、um, and it really help. It can help build support for the need to reduce single car use.、Mm -hmm. Just curious, do you think the the pandemic? I know. I know it seems to have kind of had an effect on people's perspectives on a lot of different issues. Do you think it's kind of made people think more about the environment in general,、uh, or do you think it's kind of just distracted people and they're busy worrying about that? What's your What's your experience? You know, communicating with others. Well, I think there's there's two things. The first is that I do think. Well, for those of us that lived in Ireland, I, I don't know what the situation was in the U.S. outside of my own family's experience. Um, we had quite severe lockdowns here,、mm. um, to the point where we were restricted within a five-kilometer radius of our homes. We couldn't go、right. anywhere, and、right. so for most people, that meant if you wanted to get out and about, you just walk to your local park if you're lucky to live next to one. And what we ended up seeing was a lot of people walking around in parks. Like、mm. when you went there, it would just be packed nearly, and <laughs>、right. um, people walking around. And the first lockdown was during spring. And so there was a lot more awareness of like birds building nests and you know all of that,、mm. and it was wonderful. And there was you might have seen on social media about oh nature's coming back and right. You see like river dolphins because the river the sediment had <laughs> gone down to the bottom, and so you could actually see through the water. Or here、mm. in Dublin, you know there's a fox running around in the city center, so people were like oh nature's <laughs> coming back. So there was a reconnection with nature、mm. during the lockdown. That I think、um, has carried on, at least in Ireland. I think people have started to go on like a daily walk. It's、mm -hmm. it's something that they developed during the lockdowns that they continue, and I think that's important—a reconnection with nature、mm -hmm. um, for people's mental health, but also to develop an understanding of what's happening, and then to care about what's happening、um, right. and how it can impact us. But the other part of it,、uh, I think, is a recognition of how systemic the issue is. Mm -hmm. Because you know, almost across the world, we did an experiment where everybody did the lifestyle politics thing, where we all reduced car trips if we went on any at all. We all stopped consuming at the level that is quite normal, 
um, we all kind of just stopped everything. Right. And emissions dropped. They dropped a lot. But it was only around like 7% globally, mm. which is not enough. Right. And so it, it was an indication of what socialists are always saying, that it isn't enough. Right. <laughs> and we usually say because most people can't engage in it. But in this case, a lot of people engaged in it more than you would ever expect, um, not voluntarily, but <laughs> because they kind of had to to stop a pandemic. Uh, and it still wasn't enough. And so right. it underscored the systemic nature of the problem that, you know, fossil fuels are still being used for electricity, for shipping, for aviation, for all these things. And that us just going around buying less, driving less is not enough. Mm. Um, so I think it has it has helped on both those accounts. Um, the other issue it hasn't there hasn't been enough talk about is how the pandemic was, you know, a, it was created in a certain sense because of destruction of nature and right. the encroachment into wild areas. I think that has not been enough of a conversation. It'll be interesting to see, you know, um, if there's another pandemic, which you would expect there would be right. within our lifetimes, whether that becomes more and more part of the conversation, which I think it needs to be because the biodiversity crisis doesn't get the attention it deserves. Right. And just in the short, in the short version, you're saying, you know, because of the encroachment on natural lands and things like that it brings humans more into contact with wild animals limits their habitat and so there's more spread of disease more likely for things to cross from animals to humans that's what you're talking about right oh yeah that means zoonotic spillover exactly where you've got the ability of viruses to jump from you know animal to human um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree with what you said at least in minneapolis around the reconnecting with nature part of the the lockdowns Mm -hmm. we never I, know, I guess we did technically have a lockdown in Minnesota, but there was a lot of loopholes here, but it still did limit people, a lot of people considerably, and a lot of people chose to, you know, stay home so they didn't get sick. Um, but yeah, I think the, you know, the daily walks and the people seeing things out in nature, and there is, you know, here in Minneapolis, there are quite a lot of great parks and a lot of nature, and you do see quite a lot of animals, and I think, yeah, it really did have a, a profound impact on a lot of people. Um, you know, before... Before you go, is there anything else you want to share about the environment, environmental movements, or, you know, any other movements that are going on right now that are important to you? Yeah, I guess since this is a socialist podcast, Mm -hmm. socialist news and views, (laughs) I suppose the last thing I'd say is I would really urge your listeners um, to get involved Mm -hmm. in environmental movement and campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, To learn from it, as well as to offer ideas about strategy and how we can take on not only the fossil fuel giants, but, you know, capitalism itself. And the reason I say that is because I just think it's it's just too easy to sit on the sidelines and criticize the slogans and the strategy of environmental activists and to kind of, like, sneer at them, right. um, which you just see just all too often. Um, like, in Ireland and definitely in Europe, I think the... Um, the person or the group that you're meant to like hate the most is Extinction Rebellion. Um, despite all the work that they're doing, despite the fact that these are people just trying to do their best. You know, there's a lot I wouldn't agree with, um, with various environmental organizations and campaigns, um, which was done differently. But that criticism and judgment comes from a place of experience and education. Right. And I think we do have to remember that today, the environmental movement is made up overwhelmingly of young people particularly young women and non-binary people, and they are rightfully desperate to change the situation. So we have to look to be involved in campaigns um, to offer material assistance as well as our ideas. And I think as socialists, it's really, really vital that we also bring these issues into the trade union movement 
to challenge the notion that capitalism will give us a just transition. Right. It will not. (laughs) Workers will absolutely have to create that themselves. I mean, um, if you just look at, for example, the warrior met coal miners, I mean, they're still on strike after like 10 months. They're only looking for better paying conditions. They're not looking to shut down the coal mine (laughs) and get the kind of money they need to retire early or to transition to another job. They're just looking for an increase in pay and better conditions. And the company can clearly afford it, but won't give it to them. You know, and these are workers with real power. So, you know, do we really think workers won't lose in the transition if we don't assert our needs with the power that we have? Mm -hmm. You know, they will. So it's really, really urgent, I think. The socialists are part of both movements, that they get involved in the environmental movement, learn what are the questions, the debates, the issues, consider the approach that socialists can bring to this, um, as well as the trade union movement. Um, and I would really urge your listen, listeners to really consider how to do that. I really appreciate that. And yeah, and what you what you said about, um, oh, yeah, we're, we're talking about all these people. You know, this is an all hands on deck uh, kind of scenario. So. You know, we want a lot of new people getting involved in the movement, you know, and until people have tested their ideas, they don't really know what works, what they should be doing. You know, they haven't had those conversations. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, people need to get involved where they can and how they can. And then, you know, as you learn more, you learn, you know, what's going to be effective strategy tactics and how you can how you can how we can win this thing and win a better world for working people. Exactly. I appreciate your time, Jess. Thanks so much for having me on, Nick. Take care. And that's our special interview. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions, comments, or anything else on this story or others we've covered on Socialist News and Views, you can send that to socialist.news.views at gmail.com. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.